Happy Pentecost to all of you. It always delights me to show up on a Sunday like this and look out and see how really goofy you all are. (laughs) This is great. Thanks for pitching in. Thanks for wearing red. If you forgot or you didn't know, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, but it is really very fun to come. Listen, if the resurrection is the most important day that we celebrate, Pentecost has got to be a close second. It is because of the resurrection of Jesus that we could be saved. It is through the gift of the Holy Spirit that we are saved. We're not the Spirit of Christ given to us, to every person in every place at every time. We would not experience the good, the power, the grace the redemption of Jesus. And so this is a big deal for us. We Presbyterians tend to get a little uneasy with the third person of the Trinity. God the Father we get, Jesus the the Son we get, but the Holy Spirit makes us a little squeamish sometimes because we're not typically really emotional bunch. But man, we need the Holy Spirit. We Presbyterians especially need the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to give you a chance to get a, a little more of the Spirit later on this service. So brace yourself brothers and sisters. We've been talking about game changers, how Jesus teaches us to deal with some of the circumstances of life that can be paralyzing. We looked at how Jesus deals with rejection. We looked at how Jesus deals with the issue of scarcity. And now we're going to look at how Jesus deals with the issue of fear. Fear is an incredibly powerful emotion, and every one of us has been afraid at different times of our lives. I was thinking back to those times, those moments when I had kind of the heartbeat pumping, you feel it in your neck kind of a, of a fear experience. I remember driving my family to Idaho on a vacation. We were in the left lane. One of the things I love about Idaho is they have 80 mile per hour speed limits on the freeways. It's a reason enough to go to Idaho. So we're driving along in the left lane at 80 miles, maybe even a little more, uh, 80 miles an hour plus, and uh, we went past this huge brown suburban. It was about the size of Rhode Island, and suddenly this suburban just decided to be in my lane where I was and pulled straight over without any indication whatsoever. To the left was a drop-off into a ditch, and so I pulled over. I was driving on the dirt road and uh, on the dirt of the shoulder on the rumble strip, throwing uh, stones up and laying on the horn until she finally saw it and pulled over. I was afraid. In fact, we all went to the next rest stop, and all of us changed our pants. There's another uh, experience of fear of a different sort. A few years back, I got a call from my doctor. He said my PSA count was really high, and I needed to get in and get it checked right away. If any of you have ever been through that kind of a phone call, I was afraid. You were afraid. Today, we encounter the disciples in a moment of fear. They are afraid. In fact, we read that they're terrified. They're terrified in a boat. This isn't the first time they've been terrified in a boat. Two chapters earlier, they were terrified in a boat. And that time, the boat was sinking, and they were terrified even with Jesus asleep in the stern of the boat. This time, when they hit the the storm, Jesus isn't even in the boat. But wow, is he about to make an impressive appearance. I want to remind you of the context of this story. Jesus has just fed about 20,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. One of the most massive miracles that he ever has performed. And so with that, we pick up where uh, Mark left off. Mark chapter 6, verse 45, if you want to follow it in your pew Bible or on your app. Listen to really one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. 
Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And when he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he looked out and saw that they were straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. And at about the fourth hour of the night, the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. And he meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out, for they all saw him and they were terrified. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, speak to us now, as you've already spoken through worship and through prayer, through the great Confessions of our faith speak to us now through your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Listen, if we could get a better handle on dealing with fear in our lives, it would be a game changer, wouldn't it? Every one of us faces fear, and you know I've shared my struggles with fear and anxiety over the years. If we could really get a handle on this, it would be a game changer. And I think there are some things that Jesus teaches us in this story that could help us do that. In fact, there are two particular principles that I, I want to call out. Here, here's, here they are. First of all, don't be surprised when Jesus sends us into a storm. Don't be surprised when Jesus sends us into a storm. And principle two, don't be surprised when Jesus shows up. First of all, don't be surprised when Jesus sends us into a storm. After the meal was over on the shore... And Jesus uh, had all of the guys collecting their 12 baskets full of leftovers, one for every one of them. The tone actually turns kind of abrupt. We We are told that Jesus kind of abruptly made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. He he didn't even wait until the crowd was gone. He, he just said, all right, guys, get in the boat and take off. I'll meet you later. I'll, t- I'll, I'll close this thing down. They had no choice about it. He was very insistent. It's the language of compelled. All right? And so they get in their boat. Jesus said so they did it. They got in the boat. They began to row. And almost immediately, they were hit by the Shakira. The Shakira is the Arab name for the eastern wind that sweeps down over the mountains to the east of the Sea of Galilee and then down across the waters. Those of us who travel next November together, we might experience it because it can happen that fast. I've seen it happen that fast. The waters are placid, and suddenly the shikira, the eastern wind, comes in, and it roils the sea into a maelstrom. And this is what happened to them. They're rowing along, making their way to Bethsaida, and suddenly the shikira strikes down through the uh, across the waters, and we read that they were just stricken by this. In fact, the word for how they were straining at the oars is actually the word tormenting. It's the same word used to describe demon possession. So they're pulling against these oars. They're fighting. They're tormenting against these waves, these furious winds that are pounding on them. Now remind me one more time. 
Why are they out on a boat in that kind of water? Because Jesus sent them out. The boys were exactly where Jesus wanted them to be. In a boat, straining at the oars, battling fearsome winds because Jesus told them to do so. Now, you wonder, did Jesus drop the ball? Did he not check his weather app to make sure that it was all safe for them to go out? Of course not. This isn't the first time that Jesus has sent his disciples into a situation that demands more than they had to give. As a matter of fact, you recall, they just returned from their missionary journey where he sent them out two by two, told them, I want you to go out, preach and heal and cast out evil spirits. And they did all of this without their Jesus training wheels on. He stayed behind. What's going on? Jesus is training his men. He's training his disciples. He's preparing them for the time when he will not be there to pick up after them. And sometimes that training is rigorous. In fact, the closer that they get to the cross, the more rigorous the training becomes. And frankly, Jesus' training can be rigorous today as well. He still sends his disciples into stormy waters. He still orders us into situations that are beyond our control and that exceed our capacity. He still does it. He still requires us at times to strain at the oars, at times feeling like we are making no headway at all, but acting in obedience because he is said to do this. That is what Lord means. That is why we call him Lord, because he's the boss. He can tell us to do what he wants us to do. It does beg the question, what about you? Are you in a stormy place right now? Out of hundreds that will be gathered here today, I'm sure that many of us are in a stormy place. You have prayed and prayed. You discerned the leading of God. You were sure that you heard him. You're doing what you thought God told you to do, but you find yourself straining and straining and going nowhere. And I think the text says, just relax. Just relax. Sometimes Jesus sends us into the storms precisely because it is when we are exhausted and our resources are depleted that he reveals himself to us. And that's what's about to happen. Don't be surprised when Jesus shows up. Jesus went up to pray on the mountain after he dismissed the crowd. And I actually think Jesus needed a little alone time. After feeding 20,000 people, he was just a little fed up. He said, I, in fact, he didn't even want to hang out with the boys anymore. He said, just go away. I need time with God. And so he goes up on the mountain, and he had a perfect bird's eye view of what was going on down below as the disciples were just flailing away with their oars. He let them flail for a few hours. And then finally at the fourth watch, which was about three o'clock in the morning, we read that Jesus came to them, wait for it, walking on the sea. Now for all of us Sunday school kids, we can hear this story and skip right over that little detail without a beat. But for those who have never really read the Bible, don't really know about what we believe about Jesus, this is going to sound a little crazy. Grown men don't walk on top of water. Even not very grown men don't walk on top of water. It just doesn't happen. And, and over the centuries, there have been attempts by more liberal scholars to explain this away. Some have said that he was walking on the shore, but it was an optical illusion. 
Others said, and yes, this is true. Others said, well, there were stepping stones out there that Jesus knew where they were, but the disciples didn't. And that's how he was able to pull this off. I know it. Ridiculous. But the fact of the matter is, Mark is making it very clear. Jesus was walking on the water. He says it twice on the top of the water. So for the sake of argument, let's just assume this really happened. Why did it happen? It was obviously intentional. He sent them ahead of time. He waited till the moment was right. And then he goes marching across the water. Why did he do this miracle? Because it is certainly a different sort of a miracle than we're used to. Normally, Jesus does a miracle that helps people, that delivers people, that heals people, that restores people in some way. But walking on water... A a miracle that only the disciples are going to see. What's this all about? And then we come to an even more puzzling verse. The very next verse says, and he meant to pass by them. Did you see that? You say, wait a second. If he's walking on the water out to the boat, isn't he planning on getting in and making the trip across? Then you say, well, they weren't getting anywhere. Maybe he figured he could walk across the water faster than they could row across the water. Is that what's going on? There's something way more significant than that going on. And to really understand it, we would need to really be immersed in the Bible of the disciples. We call that the Old Testament. That was their only Bible. And in the, the Bible of the disciples, there's a book called Job. And a remarkable passage in that book of Job. Thousands of years earlier, Job wrote about someone who, and quote, stretches out the heavens... And treads on the waves. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Who is Job talking about? He's talking about God, of course. Almighty God. In the Old Testament, in their Bible, only God, only Almighty God walks on the top of the water. This actually is spoken to more times than once. Job just speaks to it most vividly. Water and gravity, we discover, are God's creation. They are his toys. He can play with them any way he wants to. Only God can walk on the top of water. And Job says that when God passes by on the water, that's the language, passes by, he is so glorious in his appearance, so awesome, he dares not even look at him. It's the same account that we had when Moses met God on Mount Sinai. When God passed by, he had to avert his gaze. God covered him up because... Man cannot look upon the glory of God. It's just too much for us. When we read today's story through the lens of Job, it suddenly becomes an aha moment for us. Jesus isn't walking on the water because he can get to the shore faster. Jesus is walking on the water to reveal himself to his disciples as God. Because only God walks on water. And when we read that he meant to pass by them, it isn't that he's trying to beat them to Bethsaida. He is passing by on display. He's passing by just as God passed by Job to reveal his glory. And the difference here is, unlike Job who dare not look at the God who passes by him, the disciples are invited to look at the God who passes by. Jesus wants them to see him, wants them to understand who he is. So when the disciples do see him through the gloom and through the spray, what is their response? Does that sudden revelation bring them calm? Do they experience an overflowing of shalom in their life? Not hardly. 
we read that he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Who can blame them, right? Who can blame them? If you're sitting out in that boat in the middle of the night, storm slapping up against you, and you saw a robed figure traipsing across the top of the water, you would probably be scared. One of my life group members said it would scare the bejesus out of me, which seems somehow appropriate here. You know, this passage is sometimes used to show how Jesus shows up in the storms of our life and he takes away our fears and he brings us peace and settles us down. Do you realize what a horrible reading of that text this is? Because that is not at all what happened. When did the disciples become afraid? It was only after Jesus showed up. Did you see that? Now, they were terrified two chapters ago when their boat was sinking. They were afraid of the conditions then. But this time, they don't become afraid because of the storm. They're used to these storms. They're rowing away. They're trying to make some headway, not going very far. They're exhausted. They're tired, maybe frustrated, but they're not terrified. They only get terrified when Jesus shows up. It's only then we read that they saw him. They thought he was a ghost. And they cried out in terror. This is an important thing for us to grasp. Sometimes when Jesus shows up in our lives, it is frightening. Because he asks us to do something that we don't think we have the strength to do. He orders us to go somewhere that we really don't want to go. He instructs us to give up something that we don't want to really let loose of. The fact is, sometimes Jesus is frightening, intimidating, awesome. He changes things. He disrupts things. And by the way, he is almighty God who is the creator and the judge of the whole universe. That in itself is a reason to be a little bit intimidated. In the end, Jesus says, you're going to experience my peace, my shalom. I'll give you the peace that passes all understanding. He said, in the end, that's going to come to you. But there are times along the way that are going to be unsettling for us. But we Christians don't like that. We American Christians, especially who are not used to struggles, are not used to oppression. We don't like this at all. We want to housebreak our Jesus. We want to domesticate him. We want to turn him into our little religious lapdog. We want a Jesus who brings us peace. But sometimes the Prince of Peace brings a storm. We want a Jesus who brings us comfort and quiet. But sometimes Jesus is discomforting and disquieting. Jesus saw his disciples were in this state, and unlike God in Job's story, Jesus stops. He stops passing by them, and he turns toward them, and he utters these words that I think are the centerpiece for how this passage can help us fight fear in our own lives. He says these things. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. I love that little phrase. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Notice it's not one, but two commands from the Lord. First of all, the command to take courage. He says, take some. Choose some. Elect to receive some courage. Lay hold of courage. And the other command, he says, is do not be afraid. Do you know what the most frequently offered command in the Bible is? That one, do not be afraid. It's the most frequent command in the Bible, 70 times at least. Those words are offered to God's people. 
But the more that we see this, these two commands, do not be afraid and take courage, the more we see this, these two commands, we realize these are not just moralisms on the part of Jesus. He's not just saying, hey, you got to try harder. you got to dig deeper. you got to grit your teeth. you got to be tough. you got to be a man. That's not what he's saying. I love this phrase, and I think it's the centerpiece of our faith. And the reason is, the key to our being able to take courage, and our key to being able to, to, to choose not to be fearful, is what rides right in the middle of that phrase. It is I. It is I, Jesus says. The Greek words are ego and me. Say it with me. What is the translation of those two words? I am. I am. Am. And we say, hmm, where have we heard those words before? Ah, remember Mount Sinai when God appears to Moses and Moses says, Who shall I tell? Whom shall I tell Pharaoh has sent me? What is your name? I'd like to tell him your name. God says, I'll tell you my name. My name is Yahweh. My name is I am. And this is exactly that same phrase here. Jesus now, who revealed himself by walking on the water... Now he reveals himself by using the same divine name, I am. This is really a courage sandwich. You got the bread. Take courage on one hand and do not be afraid on the other. And you got the meat right in the middle, which is I am. Because Jesus says I am, because Jesus is with us in the storm, we can do these things that he commands us to do. We can take courage. We can choose to be fearless. And what a comfort that must have been to his disciples when all of that sunk in for them, right? Of course they were startled at first. Who wouldn't be startled to see an apparition walking across the water? But once they recognized Jesus, once they heard his comforting and encouraging words, well, then they settled right down. Oh, it's you. You good one, Jesus, you rascal. You pulled a good one on us, but now that we know it's you, we are really much calmer. We are really settled in. You climb on into this boat, you knucklehead. Is that how it went? He climbed in all right. And by the way, the moment he did, the storm ceased once again. But instead of the disciples laughing, instead of them slapping each other on the back and poking Jesus on the shoulder for the good prank that he had pulled... This is their response. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. That last phrase is very haunting. And it is actually an expression of willfulness. They chose to misunderstand. They were astonished. They were astounded. They still didn't get it. And it is so disappointing. They still did not realize that this was God who was making a very obvious appearance to them. It's disappointing because not hours ago, Jesus sat on that hillside with 20,000 people, fed all of them with five loaves and two fish, a pretty impressive and massive miracle. And they collected 12 baskets full of leftovers. Remember that? Now, I'm only speculating here, but what did they do with those baskets? Did they give them to the people? I don't think so. There were 12 of them, a reminder for each of the disciples. Did they leave them back on the shore? I don't think so. What did the disciples do with those baskets? Hmm. 
I wonder if those baskets weren't tucked right into the gunnels of the boat. So that means those disciples were rowing across in a, bas- in a boat, literally surrounded by the baskets of leftovers that reminded them of the power of Jesus. And they still did not understand the loaves. They were surrounded by it, and they still did not understand that Jesus, the I Am, was in their midst. And instead, they hardened their hearts. My dad's mom, my paternal grandma, we called her Grandma Peachy. And every time we went over to Grandma Peachy's house, we could count on the same kind of welcome. She always greeted us the same way. She would throw open the door. She had a big smile on her face. She would lean down and she would say, come in this house. Come in this house. Wrap her arms around it. Come in this house. We are never told that the disciples invited Jesus into the boat. He just got in. But I wonder if the harsh verdict that Mark delivered on those disciples, that verdict of hardness of heart, I wonder if that would have been changed if they had just said, Oh, Jesus, it's you. Come in this boat. What a relief. You startled us, of course, when we saw you walking towards us. And that whole walking on the water thing is still kind of freaking us out. But it's you. We know you. We love you. We trust you. We've seen your power at work. Come on in this boat. We want to be as close to you as we can possibly get. I wish they'd said that. But they didn't say that. Because they still didn't get it. And I wonder sometimes if we Presbyterians get it. Pentecost is about Jesus coming in this house. That first Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2 when they were gathered in that room, Jesus came into that house, into that room, into their hearts, into their lives to empower and encourage them for the storms that lay ahead for them. And there were many storms. All of the disciples but one would be martyred for their faith in Jesus. That's pretty stormy waters. They needed to be prepared. And it was the Spirit that came in to do that. When we celebrate Pentecost as we do this weekend, we're saying to Jesus, come into this house. Come into my life. Fill me up. Whatever it is that startles or scares or astounds or terrifies me, I want to remember that you are right here in the midst of the storm into which you sent me. We cannot possibly get enough of the Holy Spirit of Jesus. Especially in our stormy times. It is the Spirit who allows us to believe the promises of Christ. It is the Spirit who allows us to believe the identity of Christ. It is the Spirit who allows us to receive the revelation when Jesus says, I am. I am your friend. I am your Lord. I am your Savior. I am your Deliverer. I am your Healer. Whatever you are facing, you can take courage. Do not be afraid, for I am here. Do not harden your hearts today. As I said, we Presbyterians get to be a little squeamish about the Holy Spirit. We need to cast all of that stuff aside. Because we need more of the Holy Spirit. We can't get enough. There's something powerful when you take Presbyterians who trust the Bible, who believe in Jesus, and who actually take the Holy Spirit seriously. That is a potent combination. And so on this Pentecost Sunday, when we are reading about the invitation to come into this house... I want us to do something very un-Presbyterian. I want to ask you to get up and come forward and kneel down on the stairs. 
And if you have no room on the stairs, I want you to kneel down on the floor. And if you cannot come or choose not to come, you have to stay in your pews. I want you maybe to kneel down there. And I want you to lift up your hands to the Lord. And together, we're going to say, Holy Spirit, come in this house. Come in my life. Fill me up. I need more of you. I need to believe that you are really here. That's what we're going to do. I know it's un-Presbyterian, but that's the kind of Presbyterians we're going to be. And so I'm going to go down there, Neil, and I want all of us to do our best. It will fill the place. It will fill the, 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 the uh, aisles. That's okay. Crawl over each other. Um, it, we're just going to make a great time of it. But let's invite the Holy Spirit to come into this house. Please come and join me.